You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. You're listening to the Producers Perspective Podcast with your host, Tony Award winner, Ken Davenport. Hey everybody, it's Ken Davenport. This week on the podcast, hear the terrific playwright Daniel Goldfarb tell you which school he liked better, NYU or Juilliard. Cage match between the two institutions. He went to them both. Uh, listen in to hear which one wins. But before that, uh, let me just t- give you a quick tip. We have our Producers Perspective Super Conference coming up on November 10th and 11th of this year, November 10th and 11th this year, go to theproducersperspective.com to register. There are only about 60 seats left. We've got twice as many people coming as we did last year and some incredible speakers, Itamar Moses, Des McEnough, Lisa Crone, a whole bunch of great speakers all helping you get your shows to the next level and beyond. So go to theproducersperspective.com backslash conference and we will see you there. Now, on with the podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kentdavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Ken Davenport here. You're listening to the Producers Perspective podcast. I'm very excited for today's guest. This is a fun one because we met in like 1997 or 8 or something. When we were both coming up in the business, I was the company manager for the Workshop of Parade. And Daniel Goldfarb, our guest today, was Alfred Urey's assistant. assistant. Uh, So welcome to the podcast, Daniel Goldfarb. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So uh, Daniel is a Juilliard and an NYU grad, now teaching actually at NYU. His plays have been performed all over the country. Uh, They include the Retributionists (laughs) at Playwrights. 
Party Come Here and Legacy at Williamstown, Radio Girl at Goodspeed, Adam Bomb and the Jew Movie at Blue Light, Sarah Sarah, and Cradle and All at Manhattan Theater Club. The credits go on and on at all these prestigious institutions. Uh, very, very prolific, written a lot for TV as well. Uh, and you'll probably hate me for saying this, but it's often buzzed about in our industry that if there were a superlative for most likely to write the next great American play, he would win it. So, wow, it's true. Thank you. It's true. I remember people saying that about you actually when we when you were at Alfred's PA. Like that kid over there, watch him, watch oh, him. That's really nice. So, <laughs> thank when, you so much. When did you decide you wanted to write plays? So I grew up in Toronto, and I went to the School of the Arts in high school, and I was a drama major. And there was a one act play festival, and they were student written, produced, directed, acted, designed plays. And I wrote a play, and they picked it. And that was it. How old were you? I was 16. 16. What was the play called? It was called Family. Uh, And then actually, back then when I went to high school, we had grade 13 in Ontario. So I ended up writing plays three years in a row. Uh, I wrote a play called Lost Tribes, and I wrote a play called And the Lord Spoke to Judith. And so three years in a row, I had plays in the One Act Play Festival. And I... um, it just clearly was what I wanted to do more than acting more. I mean, I knew as a, my parents took me to New York when I was six years old and they took me to like five Broadway shows in four days. And I, I honestly at six years old knew I wanted to get here and wanted to be part of this community, uh, even though I didn't even really understand what this community was. And then, and then luckily I was exposed to a lot as a drama major in high school. And, and yeah, I, I feel really actually lucky that I was so focused and knew what I wanted so early in my life. And what was it about the theater? Because you could have written, you do write for other mediums now. What about the theater? It was like, oh, that medium, I need to do that. It just seemed, uh, I think my parents really revered it. And I, it just seemed incredibly sophisticated and special and New York-y and you know, when I was young, you would dress up to go to the theater. It was like an event. Going to the theater was like a special thing you would do on your birthday. Or um, now I live here, I go to the theater all the time. It's a different kind of thing. But as a kid, it was really, it wasn't like going to the movies. Or it wasn't like staying home and watching television on Thursday night. It was, it was, it was something special. Or, you know, we would go to New York and see a few shows. And we would plan it for months. And, and I don't know, I just... Honestly, I mean, I, the lights go down and there's something about it that just was really magical to me and really profound to me. And I knew really early that uh, I wanted to somehow be a part of it. Do you still have that first play that you wrote, that one-act play? Uh, I do, I do. I mean, it's funny, I, I, um, I have a hard copy of it. I don't have it, like, on a... I don't have it typed into a computer, uh which I probably should do just to have it on record, but I do have it. How is it? Is it good? Uh, it's, it, it's not good. It's like a, it's like this really black comedy about like a mother and two daughters that all like murder their husbands (laughs) and then have a party and don't tell each other. Like it's all like random that they each happen to do it at the same time. Uh, and, but it's funny. I mean, I, um, there's some good jokes in it and there's, and it's really, free it's really nutty and uh uninhibited writing there's something my early plays are have a freedom to them that i i um 
I try and hold on to, but it's hard as you get older. Why is that? Just because of life. You know, like you, life is, I think black comedy and I don't know, just experiencing sickness, disease, death, losing friends, divorce, all those things. Uh, I don't know, friendships fraying. Uh, mortality <laughs> like uh, it becomes harder and harder to laugh at that stuff once you've actually experienced it I think it's really easy to make uh, jokes when you're young about dark serious things because you don't quite get how dark and serious they are I maybe I don't know um, and you've just done more of them and you feel I don't think I was quite aware as a young writer how exposed you are in your writing um, in a good way. I mean, I love a play when you see it and at the end of the play you feel like you know the playwright. Those are my favorite plays. That's why, you know, and I think the great American plays, the whatever, Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller and Eugene O'Neill, they, they bore their souls in their plays. And that's, I think, an American tradition in playwriting. And I try and do that in my plays. Um, and I think most of my peers do as well. They, they write from a personal place. Um, as opposed to, like, I think British playwriting is a different tradition. And I think, but I think even, w- I'm more conscious of doing that now. When I wrote plays as, as a young person, I would just write them and not actually realize how much <laughs> I'd expose them myself. And, you know, and now I'm, sometimes I'll write something down and I'll look at it and I'm like, do I have the guts to put that out into the world? And I have to really think about it. You know, and I try and say, yes, this is, that's what good playwriting is. But um, I'm definitely more cognizant of what I'm doing than when I was when I was younger. Just, you know, I've written a lot of plays and I'm older. And... So after grade 13, did you go straight to Juilliard? I went straight to NYU. NYU first. And NYU actually admitted me as a sophomore. They accepted grade 13 as a first year of college. So I did my undergraduate degree in three years and the Juilliard Playwriting Program was just starting when I applied. It was, I think it was the third year of the program that I got into. And uh, the second year with Marsha Norman and Chris Durang. The first year was run by John Guerin and Terrence McNally. Um, and, A bunch of hacks all right. And then at the time, NYU had something called the fifth year, which meant if you, uh, in dramatic writing, if you had gone as an undergrad, you could apply to grad school and they would let you do the master's in one year. So I actually had applied to NYU for the fifth year and to Juilliard, and um, and I got into both. And I got there were other places I didn't get into. <laughs> I don't need to talk about, but I got into those two. And um, real hard choice. There. And uh, NYU let me defer for a year because at the time Juilliard was only a one year program. So. I went to Juilliard. I had a wonderful experience there. And then they invited all of us back for a second year. So then I went back to NYU and I asked if I could defer again. And NYU said no. So I actually did my second year at Juilliard and my master's at NYU simultaneously. Wow. And I tried to focus on, even though I did my thesis in playwriting at NYU and Tony Kushner was my mentor there and Adam Baum, my first play, was... um, you know, sort of I wrote with his mentorship and guidance and he's the one who gave the play to Ron Liebman who ended up acting in it and, and to Joyce Gattay who became my agent. Um, I tried to take 
a lot of film and TV classes there because I was focusing on playwriting. I, I didn't want to hand in the same work to both places, so I tried to really honor them both as two separate programs. I mean, Juilliard is really a once-a-week program. It's not like a, it's, a, it's not like going to school full-time, um, especially the second year. Which one was better? <laughs> I mean, they're both wonderful, and I teach at NYU, but I worked at Juilliard for a number of years as literary manager. I... Um, Juilliard, uh, NYU gave me an education. Um, you know, I, they, I read a lot of plays. I saw a lot of movies, and, and I, I read a lot of TV scripts. I learned the fundamentals of playwriting, screenwriting, and television writing. I had a lot of peers, a lot of instructors. I got to take other classes at the university. It felt like a university education. What Juilliard did that I think is like the sort of most special thing it does um, is it made you feel like a writer. And um, I think it's so hard for young writers. It's still hard for me to say, like, I'm a writer at Customs <laughs> or whatever when really? I'm going to the airport. It's hard. You've I still think, plays, yeah, yeah, like, you know, now that I'm like sort of uh, doing more TV stuff, it's a little easier, but um, I still feel like sort of self conscious about it um, and silly saying it. So I, I feel like Marsh and Chris, they, they wanted you to feel like part of the community. They brought their work into class. We gave them notes on their work. We, they took us to theater parties. They took us to, they got us so many tickets. They, they really worked hard to give us the sort of backbone to, to listen to notes from a, a literary manager or an artistic director or a director and not agree with all of them. You know, like they, they, they really tried to empower us. And I think that's what makes that program so unique. And I think students come out of it and they feel empowered. And I don't think any other program does that. But I don't think I could have gone through that program if I didn't have the education I got at NYU. And I feel like now that I am working more in film and television as well as in theater, I'm so grateful to have gotten the education I got at NYU. I think they're both great. (laughs) Somehow I knew you were going to say that. Where do you get your ideas for plays? You talked about bearing your soul in them. So when, how do, where do you see things that inspire you? How does that happen? Um, each play is different. Um, Adam Bomb just came from when I was at NYU. Ring Lardner Jr. came to a class of mine. It was a, a film script analysis class, and we were screening Woman of the Year, the Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn movie, and he wrote it. And he was just talking about that. And, but then he just sort of threw this aside. He was like, that reminds me of the time Sam Goldwyn hired me to write a movie about anti-Semitism and got mad that it was too Jewish. And I was like, it just, it just was a light bulb moment for me. And then the next year when I was at Juilliard, they used to, they don't do this anymore, we got to be writers in residence at New York Station Film for the summer. And they gave us a small stipend in a room and we just could hang out for eight weeks and write. So I went to the Vassar Library and I tried to find that anecdote if, if anyone had written about it. And I found it not very much, like two or three pages here and two or three pages there, but there were like five different books that referenced it. And, and that was that among. And, um, and then slowly, in doing research about Goldwyn and everything, I realized it wasn't Goldwyn. It was, you know, and I incorporated other movie moguls and a lot of my father and a lot of my childhood and like the shake hand lesson, which is the sort of centerpiece of the second act of the play something that me and my brother had with my father and like so slowly as just what I was saying it, it became 
much this sort of high concept idea became this very personal play. Um, Modern Orthodox came from uh, Marsha at Juilliard had us go around the room and say, um, "What do you think? What are you obsessed with? But you think is too boring to write about?" Um, and I said, "Orthodox Jews." And my classmates, and none of my classmates, I think, were Jewish at the time. Uh, were like, "What do you mean?" And I just started telling them these stories I'd collected over the years, and they they couldn't get over it. They just thought, and then they were like, "You have to write this play. You have to write this play." So I wrote that play, and then I got stuck in the middle of that play. And then I went and saw the movie The End of the Affair. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm writing a play about faith. And it sort of unlocked the play. And I wrote the last half of the play in like five days. Wow. And then Sarah Sarah was inspired by, um, I went to China with my sister when she adopted her daughter. And my grandmother, who my niece is named after, was a or was an orphan in a Siberian orphanage. That's how she grew up. And I sort of saw the connection and the trip to China was really a life-changing experience for me. So that's just a very, that's just a play about my family. Um, so, you know, they, they come from different places. Cradle and All was really about me trying to sleep train, me and my wife trying to sleep train our daughter and how, how much we struggled with it. Um, the Retributionist was like this anecdote I found. I forget where I found that anecdote. And I just thought it was such about these Holocaust survivors who tried to poison the German water system. And somehow I felt like I could write it like a film noir. And um, so that was sort of, that, that play, I guess, was less personal than my other plays. And um, although it was me trying to figure out my feelings about retribution and, and um, revenge and, so they all, and my new play, Men's Health, is, you know, about just, you know, what it is to be a man now and like Trump's, in this sort of, what manhood means in America now. And it, it's inspired by, uh, you know, a guy and his relationship with his doctor. And it had to do with some health issues that I had. And um, it's fictionalized, but I, uh, I definitely drew from personal experience and same with legacy. So... And so you get one of these light bulb moments or you have uh-huh. an experience with your daughter, like, oh, this is a play. Talk to me a bit about your process. Is there research involved? Do you sit down and write? Where do you write? How do you go through that process? Um, my process, the, the best thing for me to do, and I can't always do it when I start, usually I, I come up with an idea for a play and I don't write. Like, I just think about it. Like, for months, I'll be walking the streets of New York. I'll be at yoga. I'll be showering. I'll be whatever. And I'm thinking and thinking and thinking. It's hard for me to, like, sit down and start. And if I can get myself out of town, if I can, um, like, with men's health, my, um, I busted my knee in yoga. I tore my meniscus. And we had planned a family ski vacation, like, with all my siblings, like, all of us going. And I couldn't ski. (laughs) And I, uh, so I sat in the room all day, and I was like, I'm not going to waste this vacation. And I wrote, I'm going to write 10 pages a day. And I wrote the first half of the play. Then, once I'm, like, in it, once I'm 30 pages in, I'll find the time to write it. Then I'm, then it's all I can think about. I'm, like, I become obsessed with it, and I can write. At, the, at a coffee shop, I can write at home, I can write anywhere. Um, but if I can get a little bit of time away from everything for a few days, 
I've had amazing experiences. I got to go to the McCarter. They do this like writer's retreat. I did that two years in a row. I've, so sometimes I try and get invited to a place where I can write for a little bit. Sometimes I'll just like self-impose, try and go away for a few days. Um, I find that real just to get going. And then once I'm going, I can, uh, I'm not the guy who like writes every, wakes up every morning. And You're not, it's not a regimented show no. up to the office. No. And those first drafts, so you were on your ski vacation and you wrote those first 30 pages. What kind of shape are they in? Are, are you the type of writer that is going to like obsess about every page and make sure it's great? Or is it heavy redrafts? Like how, how polished are they in your Usually the like usually the structure of my play is pretty solid in my first drafts. Like I, I especially as I've gotten older, I, I do and maybe it's spending more time in the writer's room and television, but I'm conscious of the shape and structure of it. I don't just sort of I used to actually just write and go where the play took me. And now I have a sense of where the play is going when I when I sit down to write and I, I sort of know what I'm writing towards. Um so that doesn't change majorly. Usually I, and again, in my early plays, I would really underwrite them. My, my early drafts were like, my first drafts would be like 65 pages. They were almost like a glorified, like, like a sketch of what the play would be. And then I would fill it out. Mm. Um, now, like with Men's Health and with Legacy, the challenge was for me to actually, um, they were overwritten. You know, I, I, I got carried away in the dialogue and it was just seeing what I didn't need. And some men's health had taken like 25, 30 pages out of it. And wow, now that's it's like a 90 minute tight one act, I think. Um, legacy as well. Legacy, there was um, part of what was interesting about the development of Legacy was was the sort of notion of whose play was it. And in my head, the, 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 the play Legacy was originally called Matriarch. And in my head, it was her play. Uh, it's, it's about a couple trying to have a baby, an older couple, and then their relationship with their surrogate. It was done at Williamstown, and uh, it was Eric Bogosian and Jessica Heck was the couple, and Hallie Pfeiffer was the surrogate, and Justin Long was the OBGYN. And um, the challenge was the sort of climax of the play, the, Jessica's character wasn't in it. So the discussions was like, how can is it her play then if she's not in the climax of the play? And do I need to shift the play and make it more his play or make it more their play? Um, you know, and I argued like, you know, uh, Amanda's not in the climax of the glass menagerie, you know, but, um, but that was sort of the, so the, in rewriting that play, I actually ended up writing two additional scenes for, for Eric's character, for Neil, um, a scene with him and, and um, Hallie uh, Hart and a scene with him and the doctor. Um, just to sort of balance the play out. I didn't take anything away from from uh, Jessica's character, and in my heart, I still think it is her play. <laughs> but the but it became more. Um, they were they were worthy adversaries of each other. They their their roles had equal muscle to them. So that so that again, they all have their own uh, way. And then also working like with modern Orthodox. You know, I worked a lot with James Lapine, who directed it, and it had been done at the Long Wharf before Lapine did it in New York, and we sort of went back to the first draft, even though there was a lot I loved in the Long Wharf draft and loved that production, but James was very collaborative. And same with Adambaum. Um, Adambaum was developed with Dan Sullivan, and then with Joe Mantello. In the end, Brian uh, Kulik directed it, but 
I did a workshop with Dan and I and he was an incredible dramaturg and then I spent a summer developing the play with Joe who was supposed to direct it at Blue Light and um, he again also was very hands-on with the play uh, in terms of thoughts and really inspiring now that I'm older I like directors are coming in a little later in the process they're not as involved in the develop I you know I do less development you know when I was young I used to, I also worked for Douglas Carter Bean and he used to joke about Adam Bomb, like by the time the play's produced, it'll be a revival <laughs> because it had so many readings. Because as a young writer, that's what you have to do. You have to say yes to every, every, any theater that wants to read your play, you have to say yes to. And then you have to show them that, that you're open-minded. So you have to listen to their notes. So you just end up like rewriting and rewriting and rewriting just to sort of become part of the community. Once you're in the community, you don't have to do that as much. So. You you said you cut about twenty five pages out of Men's Health. You were cutting yeah. dialogue here, dialogue there. Do you have a checklist about what when you're going through? Like, oh, that I can cut that because that's why I don't need that. Is there like what gets you to cut stuff? Well, I'm I'm in a writers group, and I've been in this writers group since two thousand one. Um, it started off with mostly some of my classmates from Juilliard, but we've sort of expanded and grown and evolved over the years. But we, we meet every other Wednesday, it's, and we're coming up on 17 years. 17 yeah. years. How many people? Uh, it's now about a dozen people, but it's, it's an amazing group of writers. And, um, and I, can, I really listen to them. You know, so when, when, you have, when any of us have a draft, we bring it into group. And you know, I heard that this sort of even though there was a lot of really fun material in the first uh, 30, 40 pages, there's the play sort of stalled between page 15 and page 45 or page 50. And then there's like an event, and that event sort of carries the play through to the end. Um, while between page 15 and 45, it's just character stuff. And I, when I started writing the play, I wanted to do that. I wanted to write a play like Circle Mirror Transformation that, is, that isn't plot-driven, that is just about characters and, 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 and how the, the relationships deepen. And I, I wanted to do a series of blackout sketches. Honestly, I was like, I can do that. I can't do that. <laughs> so I realized, and then hearing it out in group, I was like, oh, I got to cut this in half. Like this, this part is, we're just waiting for the play to begin. Um, so I got great notes from group and then, you know, I, I, I had the place had a few readings. So in hearing it read, um, and there was always, I had some smart friends and some smart, not friends, other smart people at there. And I would listen to what they had to say. And usually I listen to everything, but I don't do anything rash. Then I like take a few days and think, oh, that note really stuck with me or Maybe it doesn't need an intermission. Maybe it can be a, a one, you know, like whatever that note is. And if the note really sticks with me, then I try and tackle it and do it. Sounds like you have a very good relationship with your peers. I does do. it get competitive in this world? Like, how does that you know, work? I guess there is some, con- like, there is, I think, healthy competition, but I actually think it's an amazing community. Like, to me, um, that's been the most exciting surprise about having a life in the theater which is I love the company of writers um and I feel like I have an incredible 
sort of community of writers that I'm a part of, that we are all sort of rooting for each other and supporting each other. And, you know, we all have opinions. We all think, oh, this play isn't as good as they say, or this play's better than they say, or whatever. But I, um, for the most part, I think, I think definitely the, with my writers group, it, it re, part of it is like, we spend the first 15, 20 minutes just sort of cheering each other on. Like, you tell that actor to say it this way, or you, you know, you tell that artistic director they're wrong. You know, like we do a lot of like empowerment again, which I think came from our, from Marsha and Chris at Juilliard, that idea of like just giving each other the confidence we need. Like I got your back. And then, and then someone breaks in a play and we read it. What do you think about critics? Do you read the reviews of yourself? I do read the reviews. Just be, it's very, very painful. Um, and I wish I didn't read the reviews, but just like, I just feel strange not reading the reviews because other people are reading the reviews and I don't want to just stick my head in the sand either. It feels, um, silly to me. I, if it, the, the people that don't read reviews, I have such enormous respect for them. And I mean, I've heard like I'm writing on this television show right now and my showrunner was saying that Steven Spielberg doesn't read his reviews. I mean, there are, um, you know, so I, I, I've tried different things over the years. I've tried, like, my wife reading all the reviews and summarizing them to me. I've tried, like, reading the best one and the worst one and nothing in between. I've tried, I've tried all different kinds of things. Uh, and, and, and there are, there have been productions of my place where I haven't read the reviews. But I don't know. Right now, I feel like I chose to go into this crazy business and this is what I do and it's painful and it's hard but it's just par for the course and and you gotta know I think right now um but that it's 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 evolving you know I um yeah it's evolving you talked about writing for television do you enjoy writing for tv I do a lot how different is it um, well, again, this goes back to the, what I was saying about me loving the company of other writers. Um, I love being in a writer's room. It actually reminds me of being in class at NYU. It's just, you're sitting around a table with a bunch of writers and you're talking story and you think, the, you know, your idea is so obvious and everyone has that idea. And then someone else opens their mouth and you're like, huh, like it's totally not what you were thinking. And just to learn, and I think writers are so generous and so open and free, I think in a good writer's room, and they share their experiences and their stories, and you're all working collectively to make something great, and you're all doing the work together, so when you actually are writing, you don't, it's not like being a playwright and facing a blank page, you have a lot of, you know, there's a week in a room, and there's, um, there's notes from that the writer's assistant writes every day, summarizing everything anyone talked about all day. And there's outlines and there's, I mean, there's just a lot, you have a lot of help. So, uh, and there's something really incredible about the pace of television, you know, play, as you know, you know, you write a play and if you're lucky, like four years later, someone will do it. And you've done so much development, you know, a television show, you break an episode, you write the episode, and like a month later, they're filming it. Uh, and three months after that, it's on TV. It's very fast. Uh, it's unnerving because you want to make it perfect. And you want, you know, it's almost like your first draft is the thing that's being filmed. And it's there forever. 
and you wish you had a little more time. At the same time, you you hold on to, like TV scripts. I think hold on to their impulses in a way that sometimes it's hard to do with a play because they take so long. Um, and there's like a really civilized time elapse by the time it's you know it airs. You're, you're sort of on to the next thing. You're not emotionally in the middle of it. While with a play, you're you know you're rewriting it right up to opening night, and people are writing about it on chat. Like you're you're and 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 no matter what the reviews are, you gotta and you're still processing it, and you've got to show up and be there every day. That's that part of it's really hard. Um, and I think now I've never had my own television show on TV, and I'm sure that pressure and the is immense. I've written pilots and stuff, but I find I re- I've actually love staffing. I think it's really, um, and you get to stretch different muscles as a writer. You get to write stuff that you wouldn't normally write. You teach now at NYU. I do. What lesson do you find you giving? to emerging writers the most often? Like, what's the most common note you have to tell writers coming up? I mean, dramaturgically, it's all about active protagonists. Like, what does your protagonist want? What is your your protagonist's objective in this scene? Like, uh, it's all about giving giving a play motor. Um, And because writers often can be our observers and can be pretty passive in their own lives. So... It's how do you take everything you're observing about the world and activating it. And then I'm just a big believer in finishing. I'm a big believer in writing a lot of pages. Um, I think like with undergrads, they just have to write a lot. I think it's more important than rewriting. It's just getting a lot out. Um, I think you don't need to rewrite something that doesn't need, that is, that is just part of your journey into finding your voice. It's only once you've, really feel like you have your voice then I think you can start uh, rewriting like <laughs> you'd rather um, someone have three or four plays under their belt yeah, than I, yeah. one thing that they just obsess I, about yes I think sometimes at NYU when I was there as a student it was very easy to just work on the same thing in every class over and over and over again and I think those students were frustrated they got out of the program and they with one thing and I my feeling is you should get out of the program and you should have two plays and two TV scripts and two screenplays and you should just write a lot. And then maybe as an upperclassman, as an undergrad, then you start rewriting. You know, that once, you, once you've done it enough times and you start understanding what you're doing and what the architecture of it is, then you can roll up your sleeves and rewrite. And, um, and I think the grad students are ready to rewrite, but um, I would say just write a lot. Do you think it's easier to break into the game today, or was it easier when you started? I don't know. I mean, I think it's different than when I started. I feel like, um, I think it's thrilling to see places like Roundabout and Lincoln Center have a black box space for emerging writers, like that that, that exists, that there's LCT3, that there's the Roundabout Underground. Um, those those spaces didn't exist when I was coming out. Um, at the same time, there's there's no real commercial off Broadway theater anymore. Um, there's no smaller boutique agents anymore. Uh, playwrights have to show that they're interested in writing for television. You know, when I was a st- look, when I was at Juilliard and I wrote Modern Orthodox, 
I got offered a job on Third Rock from the Sun. And my agents and my teachers all told me not to take the job and uh, that the play that the Long Wharf was going to produce the play and that I was a playwright and if I had a, if I had a TV job a sitcom job I'd be called the sitcom writer and they would kill the play and um, you know that I was a playwright and I was a voice and now you know if you write on a good television show you know it's in the first paragraph of your review like so and so wrote on Friday night. like it, it's like an imprimatur it helps you get your play produced you know I. I came out of school before this sort of new golden age of television, which, you know, a ton of, like, it's thrilling now for playwrights. There are opportunities for us to work in television and do really rich, tell really rich, exciting stories. So that's all shifted. Um, I do now see that, like, with Juilliard, some of the Juilliard playwrights, they get, like, staffed on a show, like, a week before they graduate. And that sort of breaks my heart, that you love theater, you love playwriting, you work so hard, you got into Juilliard, and you're not even going to give it a year. Like, you're going to just go right, you're just going to go do that right away. You're not even going to try. And I think the, the way New York has changed, when I came out of school, we all had a more romantic idea of living in New York and being someone's assistant or bartending and being an artist and getting experiences and this pressure to sort of be a working writer with a salary right out of school, we didn't really have it. Um, and now I feel like there is a, a generational cultural shift and that I feel like students feel that pressure. Um, so there's, there, so it's different. Um, there are more opportunities and, and less opportunities. Um, I don't, I don't know though, if it's harder or easier. Um, how much do you have to think about the business side of what you do or you think new writers have to do in terms of marketing or networking, or do you have to be cognizant of that? I mean, I know some writers that do, I, like, I don't have a web page. I don't, I don't even think I have a Wikipedia page. Like I, I don't do any of that stuff. Um, I feel like I have an agent and a manager and a this and a that. And like, I, so I, I, I show up, I go to a lot of theater. If I like, I write fan notes, you know, I write emails. If I love to play, I'll write the writer. You know, I, I, I feel like being aesthetically generous, which I am. And I like all kinds of theater. Um, and I know what it means as a writer when something you wrote, um, means something to someone. So I, I try and do that. Um, I try and be um, a good guy. <laughs> but, and I think that goes, look, there are some difficult writers that have amazing careers, you know, so I, so maybe I, maybe I'm wrong. But, but I, but that, so I, in terms of networking, and I don't think of it as networking per se, but um, I'm involved in the drama skills. You know, I, I try to be involved in the community, but I'm not out there like hawking my wares and I'm not um, self-promoting on Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that. I, I, I'm not great at that. All right. My last question, which is my genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you and grants you one wish What's the one thing about our industry that drives you crazy? 
gets you so angry. You're such a nice guy. You just said it. What would get you screaming at the top of your lungs in our business that you'd ask this genie to wish away? I guess. I guess it, it, it does. I, I wish. Um, I wish New York was was more than a one critic town. I think that's really. It makes it really hard. Um, I have friends who've been championed by the New York Times and and um, as artists, and it's been thrilling to see their work evolve and grow. And um, I haven't been. I, I sort of feel like personally, I've, I've I've never been championed by any of them, but I haven't been. They don't hate like whatever. I'm somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, some better than others. Some, but uh, basically, no one sort of said, "I'm gonna this. I'm gonna put all my weight behind this guy. I believe in him," and it makes it really hard. And I, um, and you know, whatever. Ten plays in, and twenty years into this, you know, you, it's not easier. Like uh, you still have to. You're starting at the. You know, you still have to hustle. You're still. Um, you know, your body of work doesn't count the way you thought maybe it would when you were younger. And, um, and I think if there were, if there were more people whose opinions carried equal weight, and I, like I, I hear about London, I don't know that much about it, but I hear there are like seven papers that carry equal weight. So there, you can find your your champions, you know, uh, Nora Ephron spoke at my graduation from Tisch and she said, you know, you got to find the people that believe in you and get there and get, this wasn't about critics. This was just about friends. Like don't try and get the approval of someone who doesn't believe in you is basically what she said. Even if there's like someone who you really respect and think they're amazing, if they don't get you, don't give them your script because they don't get you. You know, find the people that get you and get their notes because those are the, they're actually trying to help you be you. And, you know, and I, I wish I had that in the, so I have that in the community. Um, but I think it, it does make it hard uh, for, for writers. And it does, you know, it is why you, you can't really be, a playwright anymore and not also work in film and television. That said, I love being a dramatist as opposed to being a playwright. I love working in all three, but, um, you know, I have a new play that I'm really proud of and it's the play that has gotten me staffed on the last two shows I've been staffed on. So I know it, it, I know it's a good sample at least. (laughs) And, um, I'd love to find a home for it, you know? So is that men's health? Yeah. And that's just waiting to find a home right now. Well, we're going to do a reading of it in a couple weeks. Uh, so hopefully um, for a theater. So we'll see what happens with that. But well, um, All of our fingers are crossed thank for you. you. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to all of you for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Producers Perspective Podcast. Look out Broadway.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.